On September 12, 2001, President George W. Bush addressed the nation in the wake of the most atrocious act of terrorism ever faced by the United States. In front of millions, he stated, The American people need to know that we're facing a different enemy than we have ever faced. This enemy hides in the shadows and has no regard for human life. The United States of America will use all our resources to conquer this enemy. In response to the attacks, the United States prepared to invade Afghanistan. Their target was Osama bin Laden and his extremist group, Al-Qaeda. But Al-Qaeda's alliance with the Afghan regime set the stage for a major conflict. 34-year-old arms dealer Victor Boot watched the images on the news of the U.S. gearing up for war. Already at the precipice of his career, the so-called Merchant of Death saw an opportunity in the looming chaos. As the rubble cooled, he was going to offer his services to the Americans. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. This is our second episode on globally renowned arms dealer Victor Boot. Last week, we covered his entry into arms dealing thanks to the fall of the Soviet Union. As the 1990s wore on, he reportedly built his career funneling weapons into the hands of African warlords, fueling the continent's most gruesome conflicts. This week, we'll trace Boots' alleged involvement in the Middle East as the trafficker becomes known as the Lord of War. And we'll also explore the various attempts the international community made to stop Boot from arming some of the most heinous people in the world. Coming up, we'll look at Victor Boot's role in the Middle East. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. As we continue the story of Victor Boot, it's important to note that while a large amount of circumstantial evidence ties the arms dealer to governments across the world, very few of these deals have been confirmed on official channels. Victor Boot himself has vigorously denied many of these accusations. However, he's also a known liar. By the end of the 1990s, Boot's fingerprints were on almost every conflict in Africa. Global munitions investigations had tied him to the region, and yet no one was able to bring him down. Boot was connected to the brutal UNIDA rebel force in Angola, the same group that turned their automatic weapons against villages of unarmed civilians. It was almost a sure fact that in Sierra Leone, Boot's guns rested in the hands of drugged child soldiers. And in the jungles of the Congo, Warlords used his Soviet-built choppers to wreak havoc on helpless villages. But as his name became known, Boot evolved and went even further underground. He allegedly created multiple air transport companies, Airbus Air, Air Cess, British Gulf International and Centrafrican Airlines, to name a few, and based them all in different countries. If one airline became too recognizable in a region, he'd send in a plane from another. With so many companies under his control, Boot could continue trafficking nearly anywhere in the world, all undetected. Boot had a whole arsenal of tricks to get around borders or customs. Whether it was forging end-user certificates, the all-important piece of paper that certified a legal arms deal, or labeling weapons crates as perishable fruit or mining equipment, Boot would do whatever it took to stay hidden. Since he dealt across hundreds of international borders, no one nation had enough evidence to tie him to something concrete. But it didn't stop them from trying. In the late 1990s, the United States developed an entire task force devoted to studying Boot's movements. But the 2000 election would put a halt to their investigation into the merchant of death. The election of George W. Bush all but froze the task force's momentum. Perhaps this was a small adjustment to fit the new administration's foreign policy, or perhaps there were ulterior motives involved. One of Boot's many airlines leased planes to a construction and engineering company called KBR. And they subcontracted planes to the U.S. Air Mobility Command, which provides support to the U.S. military. Also at the time, KBR was a subsidiary of the oil field service company Halliburton. And from 1995 to 2000, Dick Cheney, the man who had just become vice president of the United States, was Halliburton's CEO. Victor Boot had always hidden the true ownership of his airlines under a mountain of paperwork. So it's unclear whether Cheney knew he was in business with Boot. But the coincidence seems a little unlikely, especially considering what happened next. After the attacks on September 11th, the Bush administration declared their war on terror. Unlike past conflicts, this crusade targeted more than a specific regime or nation. 
It encompassed all enemies of the state, terrorists and criminal enterprises across the globe. No crime boss wanted to take on a world superpower. So, to protect themselves, international crime sects proclaimed their allegiance and offered their services to the United States. 34-year-old Victor Boot was no exception. Boot was the perfect person to help the United States' upcoming invasion of Afghanistan. He had a fleet of some of the best cargo planes in the world and a reputation for being able to fly into some of the hairiest places in the world. An anonymous European official told journalists Douglas Farah and Stephen Braun that Boot had his aircrafts near Afghanistan and made them available to the US efforts almost immediately. There was just one tiny obstacle standing between him and one of the biggest clients of his career, the press. In the months leading up to September 11th, various news outlets had started publishing stories that linked Boot to Afghanistan. Specifically, they accused him of smuggling gold reserves that belonged to Al-Qaeda. Of course, the stories gained traction once Al-Qaeda became the US's biggest target following 9-11. But Boot vigorously denied the allegations. He would later claim that the US fed into the rumors to direct attention away from their own history of supplying Afghan militants in the 1980s. Boot refused to be the fall guy. In 2002, he published a statement claiming, I am not and never have been associated with Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or any of their officials, officers, or related organizations. However, we know almost certainly that this is a lie. There's one specific anecdote that suggests the association. In August 1995, Taliban fighter jets forced down one of Boot's freight planes that was en route to deliver weapons to the Afghan government. The seven crew members were taken hostage and imprisoned for over a year. What happened next is something of legend. Officially, the hostages overpowered their captors and ran to their abandoned cargo plane which was still sitting on the runway. They fired up the engines and took off. But in an interview years later, Boot himself asked, do you really think you can jump in a plane that's been sitting unmaintained on the tarmac for over a year, start up the engines and just take off? The truth was, Boot repeatedly flew into the region to negotiate the men's release with Taliban leader Mullah Omar. It's speculated that this grand escape story was merely a cover for their deal. Allegedly, Boot agreed to stop arming the Afghani leadership and deal exclusively with the Taliban instead. And by this point in time, Al-Qaeda is thought to have already aligned themselves with the Taliban and begun pooling their money and weapons, which means Boot would have been delivering weapons to both the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. It's since been speculated that Boot's network took in over $50 million from deals with the Taliban. But that doesn't necessarily mean he was aligning with the regime. One of Boot's associates said that he flew to the Taliban, not for the Taliban. In fact, ever the opportunist, Boot actually flew shipments for the Taliban's enemies too. According to an anonymous source, in the months, maybe years leading up to September 11th, Boot was also delivering weapons to the Northern Alliance, a coalition determined to overthrow the Taliban. 
These deals in Afghanistan directly mirrored Boot's African business model. For example, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where he trafficked to the government, rebel forces, and humanitarian aid groups concurrently. And yet, despite the rumors and revelations, it appears that the United States and Victor Boot may have entered into some kind of business deal once the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. For Boot, it undoubtedly would have been a smart choice. And for the U.S., it made sense too. Boot's planes were experienced in navigating the treacherous mountain-lined terrain in both day and night. They were the only ones with this intel because they were virtually the only ones flying into the region within the last decade. As an anonymous European official explained to Farah and Braun, the U.S. needed him. He had the only airlift capacity in the region. Why not? Anyone else would have done the same. Solid evidence has yet to surface officially connecting the U.S. and Boot in Afghanistan. But the circumstantial evidence is strong. During the invasion of Afghanistan in January 2002, the U.S. found troves of Taliban weapons, many of which were of Eastern European make. Defense investigators tried to tie these weapons to boot, and yet, no arrest was ever made. Was there really nothing connecting the weapons to Victor Boot? The only Russian arms trafficker who'd been working in Afghanistan in the past decade? Or was the Defense Department covering up evidence to protect him? After all, Boot may have sold weapons to the Taliban in the past, but now he was willing to work with the US. And the US could afford to look the other way, so long as they got something in return. But if Victor thought that helping the US would give him protection everywhere, he was wrong. Because in February 2002, the Belgian foreign minister suddenly issued an Interpol red notice for his arrest. They were so confident that this was their chance to nab the merchant of death they already had the champagne on ice. Coming up, European nations come together to try and bring down Victor Boot. Hi listeners, I'm so excited to introduce you to the newest Spotify original from Parcast called Blind Dating. Hosted by YouTuber Tara Michelle, Blind Dating is a fun twist on a classic setup. Strangers are introduced, conversation commences, and sparks either fly or fizzle. But here's the catch. Our hopeful singles have to choose their match before ever seeing their face. And once they've picked their potential date, we turn the cameras on, and then it's either butterflies or goodbyes. Blind Dating airs weekly with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In February 2002, the Belgian Foreign Ministry believed that they could bring down Victor Boot, not for his weapons dealings, but for money laundering. 
An Interpol warrant for his arrest estimated that he had laundered $32.5 million through various Belgian bank accounts. Belgium was careful not to spook Boot. They couldn't risk him slipping away. Instead, they teamed up with the British and the Greeks for what became known as Operation Bloodstone. Why the Greeks? Well, intelligence learned that later that month, Boot was scheduled to fly from Moldova to Athens. The time was now or never. When the day came, Boot's plane took off from Moldova as scheduled. Following the plane closely, British intelligence sent an encrypted message back to headquarters, informing the team to prepare for the arrest. But shortly after the message was sent, Boot's plane suddenly veered off course, and then disappeared entirely from radar. The agents were baffled. How in the world could a cargo plane just suddenly fall off the map? Did it crash? Did it make an emergency stop? Then, after 90 long minutes, the plane reappeared, and it was back on course to Athens. When the plane finally landed, Greek and British officers surrounded it. Inside, they found the pilot, the crew, and a few random passengers, but Victor Boot was nowhere to be found. It was as if he had disappeared into thin air. The very next day, Boot was spotted in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but no one could put together how he got there. Boot was no Houdini. He must have had some kind of help, and the encrypted British intelligence message seems to be what tipped him off, which narrows down the suspects dramatically. A European official working the case explained that there were only two intelligence services that could have decrypted the British transmission in so short a time, the Russians and the Americans. And we know for sure it was not the Russians. If that's true, it only adds to the mysterious relationship between Boot and his American protectors. Whatever covert deal they'd struck in Afghanistan, it was about to expand. Victor Boot was going to help with the invasion of Iraq. In the fall of 2003, U.S. Major Christopher Walker had just arrived at his new post at the Baghdad International Airport. Walker was the on-the-ground man authorizing the arrival and departure of all non-military cargo planes. Among the list of approved air transport companies was Airbus Air. It was scheduled to make almost daily shipments. Walker watched the airline's scruffy pilots chain-smoke beside their Antonov planes. He'd seen the vintage Soviet-era cockpits on routine inspections and was interested in the antique gauges. However, what really interested him was the crew. Everything about them seemed sketchy, from their disheveled exteriors to the way they were watching their cargo being unloaded. Something just didn't seem right. Walker did some digging and discovered that Airbus Air was owned by a man named Victor Boot. The name stuck out, but Walker couldn't put his finger on it. So he kept researching, and the more he discovered, the more worried he became. The United States was using a freight company owned by a man with known ties to brutal warlords. This had to be a mistake. When he brought this intel to his superiors, he was shocked and confused by their reaction. 
Instead of immediately cutting off ties or even promising to investigate the contract themselves, Walker was told to continue business with Irbis Air. The unspoken consensus in Iraq was that, while it may have been embarrassing for the US to do business with a known criminal, they were at war. They had soldiers on the ground, supply lines to fill, and filling them needed to be their priority. Victor Boot was the only viable option. Major Walker later explained that Boots Airlines had old warplanes built for chaos and adverse conditions. They could take bad runways, crash landings, and keep on flying. Airbuses and Boeings were just not built for that kind of wartime stress. Boots' fleet of aircrafts, the same ones that delivered to terrorists and warlords, were now fueling the US occupation of Iraq. As far as we know, he may not have been trafficking weapons for the Americans, but he was at least bringing them supplies. But while Boot remained on the American payroll, the UN was closing in on him from a different direction. In 2003, the UN went after the recently dethroned Liberian dictator, Charles Taylor. Victor Boot had allegedly supplied Taylor with weapons throughout the 90s, which meant he was back in the international crosshairs. In 2003, the UN tried to freeze Taylor's and his associates' assets, but it was difficult. Both the Americans and British resisted the effort. The implication was that the two countries were protecting Boot, who was tied to Taylor. The UN finally got some help in May of 2004. The Financial Times in London published a piece that tied Boot's air transport companies to US forces in Iraq. The day after the story broke, Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage took the stand at a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing. He was asked flat out by Wisconsin Senator Russ Feingold, is Victor Boot or any firm associated with Victor Boot providing air freight services for coalition forces in Iraq? Feingold followed this up by asking if there were any specific reasons why the US would be opposed to the UN's asset freeze of Boot. Flustered, Armitage responded, I certainly hope that what you suggest is not true. Finally, in July, President Bush caved to the international pressure and signed an executive order targeting the finances of Charles Taylor, some of Taylor's associates, and a few arms dealers, including Victor Boot. However, despite it all, Boot's planes continued to fly into Iraq until at least the end of 2005. The situation was as sticky as it gets. The US State and Treasury Departments were in pursuit of Boot, while the Defense Department kept him on the payroll. Defense officials explained that they were phasing him out. It was just until they filled their munitions contracts. Some even went as far to suggest that they were still unaware of which companies actually belonged to Boot. These excuses managed to soften some of the press onslaught, much to Boot's relief. By now, he had moved to Moscow. And even with his assets frozen, he hoped that soon all of the heat would die down and he'd be able to get back to trafficking, whether or not it was for the US. Then, in the fall of 2005, a major feature film called The Lord of War was released. It stars Nicolas Cage as an arms dealer loosely based on Victor Boot. With his name back in the papers, public interest in Boot's case was suddenly reinvigorated. 
multiple nations and agencies were once again committed to bringing him down. If only they could lure him out of his Russian hiding spot. In November 2007, Victor Boot received a message from one of his longtime associates, Andrew Smullyan. Smullyan had received an offer from a Congo-based businessman named Mike Snow about a possible deal for agricultural stuff, their code word for munitions. He offered to introduce Boot to the new client. Four hours later, Boot responded, About agricultural stuff, all possible. What is needed? You can proceed. Unbeknownst to both Boot and Smullyan, Mike Snow was a DEA informant, and he had just set the trap to finally bring down Victor Boot. Coming up, the DEA lures Victor Boot into one final arms deal. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. In the fall of 2007, 40-year-old arms dealer Victor Boot received a message from an old associate about a potential arms deal. For years, Boot had been lying low, and he was hungry to make another deal. What neither he nor his associate knew was that their new client was an informant for the Drug Enforcement Administration. The DEA had had their eyes on Victor Boot for years. In August 2003, one of his planes was discovered abandoned near the border of Mexico and Belize, smack dab in the middle of a favored route for Colombian cartels. By now, nearly everyone in the world knew that Boots was an arms trafficker, not a drug trafficker. But the cartels were closely linked with a Colombian guerrilla group called FARC. So the DEA saw a brilliant opportunity to take him down. By 2007, they had a plan. Using undercover agents to pose as FARC rebels, the DEA would lure Boot into an arms deal and arrest him at the sale. Once Boot had shown interest in the deal, his associate, Andrew Smullyan, flew to the small island of Curaçao to meet with the FARC rebels. Of course, they were actually DEA agents. Over tiki drinks, the undercover agents asked Smullyan for a specific weapon a Russian missile called an IGLA. They intended to use them to target U.S. helicopters. Smullyan assured them that his supplier could get anything. He was a top dog Russian. From Curaçao, Smullyan flew to Moscow and met with Boot. Smullyan gave him the details on the deal and Boot immediately knew who to call. His old friend, Peter Mirchev, the Bulgarian who taught him all about weapons. Since IGLA is Russian for needle, Boot asked if Mirchev had any sewing devices. By the time he hung up, he told Smullyan that they had a hundred ready and waiting for them. For the next few weeks, Smullyan worked to arrange an in-person meeting with Boot and the rebels. The undercover agents suggested Romania, Moldova, Montenegro, and Armenia. Boot declined them all, saying, You know, it's not safe for me. 
Finally, they suggested Thailand, a country that didn't require Russians to apply for a visa. Boot thought it was perfect. At the beginning of March, Boot and his bodyguard left for Thailand. On the 27th floor of a swanky Bangkok hotel, Boot finally sat down with the so-called FARC rebels. He took out a pen and paper, jotted down their wish list, and then laid out a map of South America. Boot explained that they needed a government official in their pocket, one who would sign off on an end-user certificate. He suggested looking in Central America, Nicaragua, for example. Boots traced a flight plan on the map with his fingertip. First, they'd stop in Nicaragua to get their flight plans signed off, assuming that's where their official was. Then, they'd fly over Colombia, and Boots would organize a weapons airdrop over the jungle. Eventually, he would land in northern Brazil, load his plane with flower sacks and fruit as cover, and fly back home. The moment they shook hands, the DEA agents and Thai authorities flooded into the room. They were shocked to find Boots sitting at the table, cool as a cucumber. In an interview with The New Yorker, the DEA's regional director said, I've seen people in these situations many times before. Sometimes they are angry, sometimes they are combative, sometimes they are emotional. Victor was relaxed. It's a memory that still plays out in my head. Everything that had just happened, the DEA agents, his life going up in flames, and he doesn't break a sweat. It was like he was just sitting down to read the newspaper. For Boot, this was all a game. He lost this round, but he might have another get-out-of-jail-free card somewhere up his sleeve. It had always worked in the past. But it wouldn't work this time. For two years, Victor sat in a Thai jail, hoping that he wouldn't be extradited to the United States. The Russian government even tried to intervene on his behalf, but it was to no avail. In late 2010, a Thai court granted the U.S.'s request for extradition. Boot was going to America to face his fate. It's said that the only time Boot wavered from his collected poise was when he was boarding the plane to the U.S. He seemed scared, maybe even vulnerable. A flight attendant lent him her iPod. He spent the flight listening to classical music. October 12, 2011 was the start of Victor Boot's trial. He was charged with conspiracy to kill U.S. nationals, conspiracy to kill U.S. federal officers, conspiracy to acquire anti-aircraft missiles, and conspiracy to provide material support to a foreign terrorist organization. Judge Shira Shendlin, who presided over the trial, was notorious for being especially tough on the prosecution, a plus for Boot and his defense. Immediately, she barred the use of the buzzwords Lord of War, Libya, and Rwanda. Boot's attorney, Albert Dion, argued that Boot never intended to sell the undercover agent's arms. In fact, he argued that Boot planned on pulling a bait-and-switch of his own. He intended to sell them two old planes instead of the weapons. The meeting was to lure them in for the bigger purchase. It didn't work. Boot was found guilty on all four counts. In April 2012, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. In 2012, the 45-year-old Boot sat in the prison's visitor room for an interview with journalist Nicholas Schmidl. 
At one point, Schmidl asked if he had any remorse. Boot said, I did nothing in my mind that qualifies as a crime. Sure, I was doing transportation of arms, but it was occasionally. 360 days were normal shipments. For five days, I shipped arms and made a couple of hundred thousand dollars. This was, of course, in contrast to most of the intel gathered over the previous two decades. Only time will tell if the full scope of Boot's dealings will ever be revealed. The United States and Boot himself deny much about their relationship. But it isn't hard to imagine that they would strike a deal. America has a history of making deals with the devil and then turning on them when they are no longer of value. But Victor Boot operated much in the same way. He always considered himself to be nothing more than a businessman. It didn't matter who he was dealing with. Rebel factions in war-torn countries, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, the United Nations, or even the United States. His only loyalty was to the almighty dollar. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. For more information on Victor Boot, amongst the many sources we used, we found Merchant of Death by Douglas Farah and Stephen Braun extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Nick Johnson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Kingpins was written by Malia Graska with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Merton. Hey listeners, don't forget to follow Blind Dating for a fun twist on a classic setup. YouTuber and host Tara Michelle can't wait to help hopeful singles meet their match. Search Blind Dating and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.